Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 69, July 11th to July 17th, 1862. Last week, we left things off in Virginia with Richmond saved from the invading Union Army, although McClellan and the Army of the Potomac are going to hang out on the peninsula for a small period of time here coming up. It's not going to be a particularly pleasant experience as uh, there are several writings from soldiers in the Army of the Potomac who mention how the Army was lousy at this point, so uh, full of lice, uh, and there is a lack of potable drinking water as well as for their fixed camp making things also unpleasant. Last week, we also had action in Arkansas, as well as Tampa, Florida. This week, we are going to be in Kentucky and Tennessee for a bit for two pretty interesting raids that start to change the landscape in the Western theater. We'll close out with some naval action on the Yazoo River. First, let's welcome to the stage John Hunt Morgan. On July 12th, John Hunt Morgan would capture Lebanon, Kentucky. Now, we may have mentioned John Hunt Morgan because he was present at Shiloh, but I think we need to introduce him fully. Morgan was actually born in Alabama, but moved to the Bluegrass State, of which he is closely identified. He does obtain valuable military experience while serving in the Mexican-American War in the 1st Kentucky Cavalry. After that conflict, he became a successful hemp manufacturer before the outbreak of the Civil War. Morgan is going to be famous for lightning raids, and along with Stuart and Forrest, is going to be one of the more famous Confederate cavalrymen during the war all the way up until 1864 where he meets his end. In 1862, Morgan rode 900-some men in a raid around Beale's army, which would be a very nice mimic to Jeb Stuart. Remember, we had that write-up that mentioned Morgan when talking about the ride around McClellan. Reportedly, there would be some 1,200 prisoners captured during this ride, which started on July 4th. Telegraph lines and railroads were damaged, supplies were captured or burned. Morgan importantly recruited some 300 men while he rode from Knoxville to Cynthiana, Kentucky. This boom in recruitment would lead the Confederate command to think that to move into Kentucky would have a similar result. If recruitment success could start in Kentucky and also be replicated in Maryland, This could be good additions, and it could turn both border states to the southern cause. For Morgan, in total, it was a thousand miles of raiding, and three different critical hits at Tompkinsville, Lebanon, and Cynthiana. The cutting of the telegraph lines would allow for Morgan to operate without a massive Union response. $100,000 of damage was done by Morgan's men, who did have a sharp fight at Cynthiana before outflanking the enemy. 
the first battle of Cynthiana was conducted against mostly home guard troops, but Confederate casualties were suffered by their use of houses in the city as defense. Still, Morgan had divided his forces successfully to outmaneuver the northern aligned men, using his knowledge of the town from before the war. Reportedly, Morgan had a man who would tap into the telegraph lines and decode the Union messages. Morgan would taunt federal officers, saying if they needed copies of their dispatches, he had them. Despite this success, we should also mention that Morgan and Forrest received a partisan label from Braxton Bragg. While Forrest did not like having his command referred to as partisan, Morgan would more or less embrace it. Eventually, though, there would be friction with the new Confederate commander, who takes a disliking to Kentucky troops in general, especially after the Battle of Perryville. Morgan would telegraph Wall on this raid that perhaps some 25,000 or 30,000 men were ready to join the Confederacy, which will come into play later for sure. He's going to conduct more raids, including a famous push into Indiana and Ohio in 1863, which I bet you did not know about, but rest assured, we will cover. On July 13th, Nathan Bedford Forrest would seek to also make a splash on the scene. For Forrest, it should be recalled that he had already been a part of the Fort Donaldson campaign earlier in the year. His troopers had done great service, even fighting dismounted, but anyone connected with the defeat and then surrender of so many men had been dealt a sort of scarlet letter. At Shiloh, he had sought redemption by reporting the arrival of Bull Nelson and Don Carlos Buell's army. We mentioned in our Shiloh episode how Forrest was roughly dealt with by the general officers who more or less dismissed his reports. Forrest was then able to grab some fame at Fallen Timbers with his fictitious grabbing of a Union soldier as a shield. What was probably more noteworthy was that he had received by all accounts a serious wound near his spine, but was back in the saddle sooner rather than later. In the summer of 1862, he would start bumping heads with Braxton Bragg, who did not like Forrest's lack of professional military background and did not like his native state of Tennessee. It would be in this state that Forrest would strike a blow. Murfreesboro is a place that we are going to head back to at the close of the year. But in July, it was a town occupied by Federals after the fall of Nashville. Union troops in the area were not quite so forgiving to the local pro-Confederate populace. Forrest is going to seek to settle the score. Let's backtrack just a tad and see what the strategic situation is. Buell has moved back into the area after joining Halleck in his move on Corinth. His new tasker is going to be to capture Chattanooga, a key rail hub connecting the east to the west for the Confederacy. It would be the lack of capture of the city 
that will likewise mess up McClellan in the east. He will not want to continue operations if there was the threat Confederates would shift all their forces to defend Richmond. In fact, this was always McClellan's plan. And I know recently we have talked a lot about him, but I do want to point out that this plan is not necessarily a bad one. Once McClellan had been removed as overall army commander, then it made his strategy more difficult. If Buell was shutting off the east from the west and putting pressure on that area, would these have created perfect conditions for the young Napoleon to act? Probably not, but it would have been at least more likely. Kirby Smith was operating in Chattanooga and technically was Forrest's superior. Morgan and Forrest would be set loose in an effort to harass the supply lines of the cautious Buell, which would hopefully divert manpower and keep Chattanooga from falling into the hands of the Federals. June 7th and 8th would see sporadic artillery fire at Chattanooga, with James Negley advancing against the city. Buell was going to move to join Negley and hopefully overwhelm the defenders. Now Murfreesboro was a logical target for Forrest, being a railroad town in between Nashville and Chattanooga. There were two things that would play handsomely into a raid on the town. Number one, the citizens were strong secessionist supporters. Because of this, there had been actions taken against them and their property by the occupying Union cavalry. Some men were jailed due to their suspected involvement in aiding the rebels. We have talked about how East Tennessee is more aligned with the Union cause than that of the Confederacy, and there is harsh treatment of the citizens in that area by the Confederacy. So it's kind of like we talked a little bit about how South Carolina is held on a higher standard in terms of the wrath of the Union men because that is where this war began. So they're blamed sometimes for the war starting. This is a similar kind of scenario where the Tennessee citizens are getting blamed for the harsh treatment of Unionists in that state. And sometimes they're treated harshly by Tennessee Union troops as well, obviously being in their home state. Number two was that the Union commanders did not like each other. Colonel Duffield and his subordinate, Lieutenant Colonel Parkhurst, were camped with the 9th Michigan in parts of the 7th Cavalry at Oakland's plantation. On the other side of town, closer to the river, were camped some 500 men of the 3rd Minnesota, whose commander hated Parkhurst, which will come into play as the raid unfolds. Forrest was able to put together a group of 1,400 men. In his command was the 8th Texas, Terry's Texas Rangers, who were the best fighters and the best unit Forrest had in his command. They're actually going to be taken from him after this raid, which is going to start to boil over the bad relations that Forrest is going to have, not only with Braxton Bragg, but also Joe Wheeler as well. 
He also has elements of Kentucky Cavalry, as well as the 2nd Georgia Cavalry with him. The plan was very simple. The 8th Texas would engage the troops at Oaklands, while Forrest would personally lead the Georgians through the town, eliminating the garrisons at the courthouse and jail before blocking the 3rd Minnesota from moving against the rest of his forces. Four pieces of artillery were also with the Minnesota Cavalry, which would be nice if they were in rebel hands. Forrest would wish to receive a nice birthday present, because the 13th was actually his 41st birthday. Forrest's men were able to capture the Union pickets upon their approach by masquerading as more men from the Pennsylvania Cavalry. Without a shot, the Texas men were able to approach Oakland's and attack, scattering or capturing most of the Keystone Staters without a fight. The 9th Michigan was able to gather behind a wall and mount a better defense, despite a wounding of Colonel Duffield. Possible Confederate propaganda had it that Duffield was shot in the particulars, which may not be true, but he definitely suffered a wound to the groin, which is not where I would want to have one. Pinned down, Parkhurst would beg for Colonel Lester and the Minnesota 3rd to come to their aid, but they would not. Meanwhile, Forrest had led men downtown, where he would capture the courthouse and free prisoners who may have been scheduled to hang for aiding the Confederacy. Reportedly, Forrest would kill a Union man in cold blood who had set the jail on fire with the men still locked inside. There had been a scramble to save them from the flames. During this ride, Forrest was almost the victim of friendly fire, barely missing his head when his cavalry returned shots they received from the courthouse. Rebels were able to break down the door and capture those inside, including General Crittenden. With the Michigan cavalry pinned down and downtown captured, Forrest would turn on the 3rd, who had formed ready for action, but so far had not moved against the enemy. Fire from the cannons would dissuade any attempt at frontal assault. Forrest would ride a small force, flanking the Union men and capturing their camp. Still in a bit of a situation, Forrest would demand the surrender of Parkhurst, spinning the lie that Lester had already surrendered. He also played into the fierce reputation he was starting to acquire, saying he would kill every one of them to the last if they did not comply. Duffield and Parkhurst would surrender, and the same deal would be floated to Lester, who would also capitulate. Somewhere between 800 to 1,200 prisoners were taken, at questionable loss for the Confederates. I've seen in the range of 40 all the way to 150, as opposed to 41 from the Union side. Valuable stores were also secured. Forrest's raid actually made Tennessee Governor Andrew Johnson believe he may also be able to move on Nashville. Because of this, Buell would think twice now before moving on Chattanooga, 
obviously worried about the security of his supply lines between Morgan and Forrest. Andrew Johnson is going to have some political sway with Buell, and we're going to see that affect the Perryville campaign as well. He's going to request forces be set aside to protect Nashville as Braxton Bragg and Kirby Smith are invading Kentucky. So we are going to see that down the line. Another interesting antidote from the raid on Murfreesboro is that Forrest reportedly takes fire and then fires back at a escaped slave who picks up a weapon at Oakland's plantation and takes a shot at him. And this could have been possibly one of the first times that an escaped slave picks up a weapon and joins the Union Army in conflict. It's obviously can't be proven, but it is documented, and it's early enough in the war where it very well could have been. So it is an interesting thought. When last we left off the naval situation along the Mississippi for the Confederates, things looked bleak. There was burning at both ends of the wick. Union forces had captured Memphis and New Orleans, causing there to be only one real obstacle left on the mighty river at Vicksburg. Naval ships and operations would withdraw up the tributary rivers, as we learned with the White River expedition into Arkansas. The Yazoo actually flows into the Mississippi right at Vicksburg. It would be here that the CSS Arkansas, as yet unfinished, would be towed. Essentially, the ironclad was just a hole without any kind of armor. Under the direction of Isaac Brown, the ship would start to take shape. Skilled men from the infantry would be requested, and Davis would drag his feet, showing the desperate need to keep men in the army. Eventually, a couple hundred would be given the task of working on the Arkansas, working in two 12-hour shifts. Not sure if they got days off, but I would venture to guess their work-life balance was not good. Nearing completion, three wooden vessels that would have accompanied the Arkansas would be burned rather than risk falling into Union rams stationed in the area. This was a huge blow for the river defense fleet. If you remember Captain Lynch, who was present for the action at Roanoke Island, well, he's actually going to bring charges against Commander Pickney, who, you remember, had taken over the defense at Fort Pillow. Nothing would come of the court-martial, but the loss of the three ships to a navy that was already lacking was certainly not going to help should be pointed out as well that the ships did not have to be burned. The Union Ram didn't make it quite to the area where they were, so it's something that could have been avoided by the Confederate Navy. Once the CSS Arkansas was completed, our friend Earl Van Dorn, who had taken command at Vicksburg, ordered the ship to join them at the city. To do this, Brown would have to defy river obstacles 
as well as Farragut and the Union fleet. On July 14, 1862, she would steam toward a small group of Union vessels after getting caught on a sandbar. Of these vessels, one was the USS Carondelet, who has been engaged in several of the actions we have already discussed. Her captain, Henry Walk, would turn and lure the Arkansas out into the open river where the rest of the fleet was waiting. Firing as she approached, the Arkansas would damage the Carondelet and continue to pour it on at close range, causing a total of some 35 casualties. Seeing the situation as hopeless, Walk would run aground and strike his colors, surrendering the vessel. Brown would bypass the prize and continue on after the Allied vessels, amazingly. A formidable ironclad, the Carondelet was about to free herself and rejoin the rest of the fleet because she was not claimed by the rebels. Sometimes when we talk about these engagements, I'm like, what if the Confederates had two of these things? How would it be different? The Carondelet was a city-class ironclad and probably at this point had 14 guns. It's wild to think that this was potentially bypassed on the rationale that there was no time to take prisoners. But I guess that is just Monday morning river fleet admiraling now, isn't it? So, two vessels coming back instead of three would be alarming to Farragut. His fleet would prepare for battle and engage the Confederate ship. Sailors on board the Arkansas would be fearful that they would even get through the fleet and reach Vicksburg. Brown would write that his ironclad was seemingly surrounded, at times taking shots from all different directions. The Union rams were deployed in an attempt to knock out the enemy ship as the Arkansas steamed close as she could to the Union gunboats. One ram did get close, but was knocked out due to return fire from the ironclad. The Arkansas was able to get through the fleet and safely reach Vicksburg, despite the long odds. 25 men were killed or wounded on board, compared to the 111 total casualties suffered from the Union fleet. One ironclad making its way through the entire Union fleet will be a source of embarrassment for Farragut and Davis. They would attempt to pass Vicksburg on the night of the 15th in an effort to destroy the Arkansas. Shore batteries would be alerted by range lights, so the rebels were somewhat aware of the Union plan. They would fire on the ships, as would the Arkansas, who had taken a new position. Return shots from the Union gunboats would actually disable the engines of the ironclad, but the USS Weania would be severely damaged during the pass. July 22nd would bring about another attempt to take out the Arkansas, as the southern ship had become Farragut's Bismarck. The plan was that the USS Essex would engage the enemy vessel, and while occupied, the ram Queen of the West would then take her out. This plan, though, did not work, the Essex being temporarily disabled and taking fire from the shore battery. 
Queen of the West would not score a direct hit and be forced to withdraw. After the action on the 22nd, Farragut would move his fleet back downriver for resupply at New Orleans. Vicksburg, it seemed, would not be able to be taken by the Navy, as other cities had. We can actually go ahead and bring it to a close for now. We have had two cavalry raids, fully introducing John Hunt Morgan. Nathan Bedford Forrest will also be making a name for himself within the Confederate ranks. It was reported that the Confederate infantry, who generally had a dislike for the cavalry, would have a certain reverence when speaking of Forrest's brigade. After the successful completion of the raid at Murfreesboro, Forrest would actually be promoted to general. We also had continued action on the Yazoo River. Farragut will give up on the attempt at Vicksburg for now, a tougher nut to crack. Next week, we will briefly check back in with McClellan and Virginia. We are also going to talk about the Mormon War, which does add to the battlefield experiences of some of the officers engaged already in our story. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.